just trying to get to the right place. Excellent. I think we've got a picture to begin with. Um, I hope it comes up on the screen. It's a Wil- William Wilberforce. He was a local man. Um, he lived overlooking Clapham Common, which isn't too far from here. Um, he was a big-hearted Christian man, if you know anything about him uh, at all. Biographers basically characterise him in, in a couple of ways. He was a radical man. He was undaunted. And he was a man noted because of his perseverance. He had a mission. He had a cause, I guess you might say. And he was willing to spend his life in pursuit of it. Let me take you through three dates in this man's life. 28th of October, 1787. He was 28 years old. And I guess some of you are similar to that age. And he wrote in his diary this. God Almighty has set before me two great objects. The suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of morals. And he becomes an MP in order to fight those two great objects. Uh, And he battles in the commons and he loses again and again and again. And when he's criticised, he never slumps. Uh, He he never goes home to drown his sorrows. He never gives up at all. Even though people ruthlessly lied about him, they slandered him in public and in the papers. No, he stood firm. The second date is this, the 24th of February in 1807. This man is back in the commons. It's 4 a.m. in the morning. It's at the third sitting and the third vote. 20 years after he began, the slave trade in Great Britain becomes illegal. And you might have think, oh, well, he can sit down now. He's kind of finished, but it wasn't finished. You see, the slave trade was illegal, but slavery itself was not illegal. Of course, it was bound up with the economic interests of those who had the casting vote. And so did he retire? Did he kind of say, I'm exhausted, I'm going to give up right now? He was utterly, utterly spent. His spine was curved because of his lack of sleep, many would say, and he had illness as well. But he never gave up. The third date is this, the 26th of July, 1833. Sixteen years after that initial vote, and only three days before William Wilberforce died... Slavery became illegal in Great Britain and all of her colonies. And at that moment, the commons rose and they gave that great man a standing ovation. Why? Because they recognised this man was utterly extraordinary. In that, he was willing to spend his life, give his life, sacrifice and devote everything for this particular cause, his mission. And you might want to ask, in examining that life, where are the Wilberforces today? Now, he lived uh, to remove these great objects, as he called them. And it was worth so much to him that he was willing to sacrifice pretty much everything. But in fact, it wasn't the greatest motivation of his life. It wasn't the greatest cause of his life. In fact, the greatest mission of his life the ultimate mission, if you like, is the same mission as the man that we've been reading about here in Luke chapter 4, and his name is King Jesus. Many of us know him, many of us love him, and we've trusted him with our lives, but also with our deaths. But today, what we're going to see is the mission of the king. And in seeing the mission of the king, I hope that we have a similar mission, and it may motivate other great causes in our lives. Because it... it, it If this is the mission of the king, as we see here, then those in his kingdom should be defined by his mission. 
Uh, we should want to respond to it, to, to emulate it as much as we possibly can. Well, that's our aim today. Now, to give a bit of context if we can. We're in the opening chapters of Luke's Gospel here. This Luke's Gospel, recorded by Dr. Luke, it accurately records, historically, the beginnings of Jesus' public ministry. So really, our passage today, what it does is it spells out his manifesto, but also his mission, which is what we're going to see. And this passage sits in the context where Jesus has just defeated uh, Satan in the wilderness. He doesn't do this through, through some physical conquest, beating him up, but rather through a spiritual conquest. He chooses to honour his father and not himself and his, uh, to honour himself, but to honour his father and obey his father. And now returning from the wilderness, Jesus, he's back at home. He's playing in front of the home crowd, if you like. He's back in Galilee. And we see that as he returns in verse 14 and 15. Have a look at it. You'll see there he comes back. Let's remind ourselves of those verses. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And the news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues. And everyone praised him. So Jesus returns. And literally that word means, he's saying he's guided by the Spirit. And Luke continually mentions, both in, in his first part, Luke, and also in Acts, Luke's second, if you like, account of Jesus' life, work, um, he always mentions this guiding in the power of the Spirit. Both in Jesus' earthly ministry, recorded in Luke, and his heavenly ministry, through his apostles, in Acts. He's always guided by the Spirit. And he's proving popular, we see that. News spread about him throughout the whole countryside in verse 14. Go to verse 15. He then teaches in the synagogues. Now, the synagogue is a place of uh, meeting uh, for the Jews in a, in a particular locality. They couldn't always get down to the temple in Jerusalem, so they would gather in these places, synagogues, where they would hear um, the word of God read first and then explained. And normally they would read a summary of the law in Deuteronomy 6, and then they would read a section of the law. Uh, one of the first books of the Bible, first five books of the Bible. Then they would read a narrative and then a, a section of a prophet as well. A teacher would probably then stand up after the readings. There would have been about 200 to maybe even 400 people gathered in around the situation. And they would stand and explain the scriptures that had just been read out aloud. Think about that just for a moment if we can. It's a little aside, but I hope it's helpful. People would only hear God speak by his spirit and through his word once a week as the scrolls were opened. And it's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? Because I guess that 99% of us here have phones that have got applications on them and have got, I don't know, numbers of translations of the whole Bible at our fingertips. And yet here, in this context... The scrolls would be open, so precious, so expensive, so costly. I mean, the only, only the major synagogues had all of the scriptures in scrolls to begin with. It would take scribes days and days and days to accurately record them. Think how precious it is that we have, even in our hands, the Bibles, full Bibles, that we can hear God speak through his spirit and by his word. 
That's a little aside over. Let's get back into it. But here they are, verse 15. He, Jesus has taught them. He stands up at the synagogue. We're in Nazareth, the context there, geographically there. And, and he reads from the final scroll of Isaiah in verse 17. The response, well, it's like Manchester United playing Old Trafford. He's right there. It's like England playing at Twickenham. They're loving it. The home crowd. Yeah, look at the guy's back. But then we see Luke very cleverly using this little phrase. Did you spot it? Everyone praised him. And now this little phrase is only used elsewhere in the whole of the New Testament to describe the praise of God. What he's saying here, very clearly, very, and it's not sneaky, it's very obvious, explicit within the Greek. He's saying, actually, Jesus is the God-man and he's returned home. And he's opening up the scriptures. But what does he teach? Well, he teaches those gathered what his mission is. And we get to our first main point here, that Jesus proclaims the day of God's salvation. Let's remind ourselves again. Cast your eyes down, verse 18, and we'll, we'll go through that, just to remind ourselves. Jesus teaches, he says, and explains, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 18 and 19, they're actually a summary of two little sections uh, within the book of Isaiah. The last scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6, and 61, verses 1 and 2. Note those down. You can have a look at those later if you want. And what he's done, Jesus, he's he's kind of brought together these two little sections into one statement. Uh, You might think that's a bit of a kind of ripping out of the text there, but actually this is very common within ancient literature of the time. You, You could do that, and it was well known to do that. But these verses, you see, they tell us why people are so excited that Jesus has returned and and they're, they're hearing him teach. And it's why we as Christians ought to be so excited to hear Jesus speak today by his word and spirit working through that word. It all hangs on what he promises each of us. And the promises here are mind blowing. So in verse 18, in quoting from Isaiah, I guess it's wise, isn't it, if he's quoting from Isaiah, that we understand the context of what what Isaiah is saying. So we're going to do that. In in Isaiah, the the chapters that he's referring to, 58 and 61, that whole section is really about speaking of the holiness of God's people. Specifically shown, practically here, in how we treat the poor, the marginalised. So... Sandwiched between those two chapters that that Jesus is quoting there, Isaiah 59. Again, have a look at this later if you want. In Isaiah 59, it's all about God lamenting, crying out, because his hard-hearted, stubborn people um, have shown no compassion. There'd be no goodness kind of passed on from them to others. And so in Isaiah chapter 60... God declares that by his own strength, he uses this funny phrase, with my own arm, there will come salvation. Essentially what God is saying is, 
because of you lot, my people Israel, you have messed up. You're stubborn and you're proud and therefore I'm going to just do it myself. And then you get to Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, which is what Jesus quotes here in verse 18 and 19. And a voice appears. And it's a voice speaking for God. And what Jesus is saying here in Luke 4, he's saying, hey, today this is fulfilled in me. That is, he's claiming that he's the voice speaking for God. The voice of God that will, as it says in verse 18 and 19, proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery aside for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. It's a big claim, isn't it? If you think what Jesus is very often viewed as, oh, just a good moral teacher. It's way beyond that. But how do you read what Jesus says in those couple of verses? Does Jesus just, oh, he does some miracles. He kind of you know, heals some people. The blind man is, can now see and so on. Does he release the oppressed? Is that the limit to his power? Is that what he's speaking about here in Luke chapter 4? Again, The context of Isaiah is really helpful here because in Isaiah, the passages that surround these quotes that Jesus is speaking here, blindness and oppression are understood in much deeper ways than just the mere physical. So uh, Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1 and 2. Write that down if you like. Have a look at it later. Isaiah is very clear that there's something bigger. There's There's a bigger problem in all of our lives. It's not just that you know, someone's blind, that they're, they, they're crippled, that whatever it may be, know that they're oppressed. No! The biggest problem that we all have is our sin. Isaiah 59 verse 2 puts it this way. Our iniquities, our sin, our rebellion against God, our iniquities have separated us from God. So the way that we reject and ignore God, how we use each other for our own purposes, how we reject God's loving and kind instructions for our lives and for our world, that's our biggest problem. And the Bible calls it sin. We're cut off from God because of that sin, Isaiah 59.2 says. So in Luke's gospel, Jesus' mission, you see, is clear. It's not to bring economic or political stability, to release the captives, to heal physically. Though in his kindness, he does many of those things. Jesus' mission is all about forgiveness of sin. It's all about salvation. And you see, whether rich or poor, whether from one ethnic background or another, we are all united in one thing. We've all been blind, spiritually, wandering around in confusion. Where is God? I I don't know what he looks like. I, I, I can't see him. We've all been poor, spiritually, lacking before God, because we can't merit ourselves enough before God. We've all fallen short. And we've all been captive spiritually, held by our desires. We all know how difficult is it to shrug a particular habit that we know is in rebellion to God's word. Well, Jesus came to make us spiritually rich, to give us sight, to open our blind eyes so that we might see what God is like. He sets us free from our captivity to sin and its consequences so that we can live in joy. Knowing him. He proclaims the year of the Lord's favour. So he proclaims forgiveness and love that we can know for eternity. 
if we have trusted in him. Make no mistake, don't think Jesus' mission doesn't include you and me. Jesus uses these metaphors here to describe our spiritual condition. And we all ought to be looking at ourselves right now because he's talking about you and me. Now it is true that both in the Bible and throughout history, it is the physically poor and the physically broken uh, who are often the ones who are humbled first before God uh, and therefore turn to him. Absolutely. Luke's gospel shows us very particularly, probably because Luke was a doctor who recorded this history, that Jesus goes out of his way to speak to the poor, the marginalised, the sick, the women, especially in that culture, and most especially the widows who were so poorly treated in that culture. Those cut off in society are welcomed by Jesus in his love. That is his mission. He proclaims the day of God's salvation. That's priority one for Jesus. Now we do need to move on, but I I want us to note this before we get to our second point. Very, very quickly. Did you note that as, as he quotes Isaiah 61, he says, now is the day. Did you spot that? Israel have kind of waited, God's people have waited and hoped that they might be free from guilt and shame. That we all know, don't we? To a degree. And I guess there'll be some here who still wait and hope that one day that they'll be free from the guilt and shame that that you know right now. But I want us to be assured that the Christian faith is not about waiting and seeing. Jesus says, now is the day. See, the Christian faith is about coming to Jesus and he says, no, come and enjoy, not wait and see. In just a couple of years, Jesus hung on a cross and as he hung there, all those sins that separate us from God, they are wiped clean, which essentially opens up the door and says, come and see, come and enjoy relationship with me, loving Joyful relationship with me. It's not about wait and see. Just trust in me. Jesus here is proclaiming the day of God's salvation. Now is the day. And today if you listen to his voice. Speaking as directly as it possibly can. Through his word. And by his spirit working in your hearts right now. If you trust Jesus with your life and your death. Then you can know. This salvation that's been promised here. And this is Jesus' mission. And the question we're going to look at later is, is it yours? Is this your greatest priority, your greatest mission, your greatest cause to see salvation amongst those we live amongst? Well, we see um, in our second point, that it wasn't all praise and adulation. It begins that way, doesn't it, in, in, in our passage today. But we see, in, as I through our second point, Jesus, despite the evidence, is rejected. He's rejected. The saying goes, doesn't it? Familiarity breeds uh, contempt. And that seems to be the case here. Look at the contrast in this second section. Verse 22 to verse 28. Cast your eyes down. You see, they were amazed in verse 22. There's excitement. They're ever praising him. Verse 28, what happens? They're furious. Really strong term that. What happens in those six, seven verses there? I think simply, uh, many commentators would say, is that their prejudice 
blinds them to the evidence of who Jesus is. I remember as a teenager, I knew this guy. He was a year younger than me. And uh, he was a nice lad. He was quiet. Uh, he was a shy guy. He was studious. Uh, most people liked this guy. He was called Michael, by the way. He was a year younger at school, a neighbouring school. But they never thought, as you looked at this chap, he, he would ever amount to anything at all. At a casual glance, you'd think, oh, you know, I don't think much of him. He's not particularly impressive at all. And in a sense, what had happened is that our prejudice um, had blinded us to the evidence of who this chap was. In fact, we didn't even know, want to know the evidence of who this chap Michael was. But the evidence really was that Michael was quite a good cricketer. And he ended up being the England captain. We just didn't look though. I guess what you're seeing here is all the crowd, you see in verse 22, all they could see was Joseph's son, the carpenter's son. They couldn't see any further. They couldn't see any deeper. And this rejection of Jesus that we see here, despite all of the evidence, was right there at the start of his ministry. And it's a rejection that continues throughout, the whole way through his ministry, right to the end, which is all more obvious. Many of you have seen, I don't know, there's a painting coming up here. Um, I think we're going to get to it. There we go. It's, uh, I know there's a few artists here, so I'm not going to make any comment about their kind of the art itself, but it's a very famous painting by a guy called Holman Hunt, and it depicts the, the young Jesus stretching out his arms. He's doing something, you know, his carpentry shed of his father or something like that. The painting is called The Shadow of Death, and as Jesus stretches out his arms in the painting, you'll see that the sun casts a shadow on the back wall where the hammers and the nails are hung. What's the point? Well, for Jesus, the cross, if you like, casts a shadow throughout his whole life. And likewise, this, this little rejection here in Luke 4 is just a shadow of the great rejection that is to come. Oh, it's not in Nazareth, as the context is here, it's in the great city of Jerusalem. Oh, it's not just the synagogue rulers, it's the Sanhedrin, the big chiefs of the Jewish faith, seated in Jerusalem. Jesus won't just walk through the crowd on the brow of the hill as he does in verse 29. No, he'd be hung on a cross on the brow of the hill. Just outside Jerusalem. We've scooted through that, but what provokes the crowd? In some way, there's a sense of familiarity here. Yes, to a degree, it does breed contempt, doesn't it? They just couldn't see the evidence for who Jesus was and would be. You can imagine them saying, who is this Jesus guy? You know, he's just the son of Joseph. He just kind of bangs nails into bits of wood every now and then. He was rubbish at football in the playground. I used to tackle him. He was, went down like a, you know, too, far too easily. You know, you can imagine boys saying that. And surely he can't be. Familiarity of bread contempt. But I think there's more going on here. And that's why that little section from verse 24 through to 27 might seem confusing also tells us something else. Now, I think it comes clear with the account of Elijah and Elisha. If you don't know where that is, it's back in 1 and 2 Kings. Elisha and Elisha were prophets of God, 9th century BC. Now, I guess this is kind of new territory to some of us. But simply, through these prophets, they were sent to the northern tribes. The kingdom of God was separated at that point and divided. They were sent to the northern tribes of Israel for God to speak through them and deliver his message to them. But the people outrightly rejected them 
as prophets of God. And so God decided to wake his people up. They were stubborn, they were hard-hearted. And the way he chose to do that was through the, the stopping of the rain for about three and a half years. But the people were continually stubborn. And they rejected God and they refused to turn back to God. People were starving. And, and to wake pe- uh, God's people up again and again and again. What, what did God do? He sent his greatest prophets out, away He sent Elijah to a pagan woman, a widow uh, in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon, where where God's enemies lived. It it was like going completely away from God's people and God's place, just to wake God's people up, but this still remained stubborn. Uh, God used Elijah to miraculously provide food for this woman throughout the drought. And likewise with Elisha, we won't go spend too much on that, he sent to Naaman, the Assyrian general, the general of the army who would actually come in and sack God's people. The, the worst of the worst enemies. And God sent to provide for him, to heal him. See, God's people were, God was using these situations to try and wake up his people because they were always meant to do, to do more than just enjoy God's blessing. They were meant to be the, the kind of the, the distribution place of God's blessing. To pass it out to all the other people. The knowledge and all that they'd enjoyed as a historical people of God. But instead what they'd done is they'd hoarded. And they kept everything to themselves. And they'd stubbornly ignored the one who had blessed them. Namely God himself. But when Israel failed, God overlooked these people, God's people, his people. And he reached out to the other nations himself through these prophets. It's, It's a glimmer, if you like, of of what God has done now in sending the gospel to all the nations through his spirit-empowered and Bible-saturated church. Israel thought that God had belonged to them. They were arrogantly keeping everything to themselves, God's blessing and God's promises to themselves. But in reality, God, no, did not belong to them. They belonged to God. And move forward nine centuries to what is happening here to Jesus. And the Jews are thinking exactly the same at this point. They were thinking, God belongs to us. They thought they had the rightful kind of exclusive claims. Uh, They had to be the exclusive recipients of God's blessing and promise. But there's a breadth to Jesus' ministry here and his mission. His gospel extends to all people, all nations, including the Jews, but not exclusively. Likewise for us today, the message of the gospel is not just for people who gather here in this place today. It's for all people. And I wonder whether you believe that sometimes. I wonder whether I believe that sometimes. Maybe you're just more like the crowd in in verse 28. All the people in the synagogues were furious when they heard this. They said, oh, I I don't want this message to go any further. I want to keep God's blessing to myself. Thank you very much. If you understand the mission of the king, that he's come to open blind eyes, to free those spiritually captive by their sin, then you you must understand that there's got to be a generosity, a breadth to the church as it seeks to get this message out, the blessing of God out. See, the person you live next door to very possibly needs to hear the saving message of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Or are you just utterly offended, as the crowd were, by Jesus' mission to save all people? Do you just want to keep it to yourself? Don't be. I say as a little warning, look at verse 30 as we close, very very quickly. It's not a warning, essentially, verse 30. It's, it's, a, it's a statement of fact that Jesus will complete his mission. Have a look at it, it's extraordinary. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Oh, we don't know how, because they dragged him up there. They want to chuck him off a big cliff. We don't know how. But he did. The point is, your apathy is not going to stop Jesus fulfilling his mission. And you see that he just walked straight through a crowd who longed to kill him. He didn't die that day, did he? But if you go on in Luke's Gospel to chapter 9, verse 51, you see, as the time approached, he resolutely walked toward the cross. He decides when he's going to die. He's in utter control. He's going to fulfill his mission. You cannot stop it. He will do it despite us. But the point is he invites us to join him. And in so doing, we receive his favour. Jesus never returns to Nazareth. That's interesting, isn't it? Because from this point on, Capernaum's his home. A judgment, can you imagine what will happen? People of Nazareth will come around and they will face God enthroned on high. And they will hear, you rejected my son. Familiarity, yes, may have bred contempt, but we must not let that be us. We must turn to him, get involved in in his mission, have his priorities, so that we might receive his favour. Oh, we're not going to earn our salvation, but that favour is his blessing, the joy of giving everything we possibly can to honour the one who has saved us. Perhaps you've never asked for God's forgiveness by trusting in Jesus' life, death and resurrection. Perhaps as a, a Christian you've just forgotten. And this is so easy, isn't it? You might have been a Christian for 20 odd years and you're thinking, oh yeah. But you forget how wonderful it is to know your sins forgiven. To be a recipient of Jesus' great mission as he died on the cross. We ought not to be British and reserved about God's immense favour through Christ. Let me finish this way if I can. Christians, what is your cause in life? What is your mission? Spurgeon, uh, the great preacher, very local preacher, lived just up on Nightingale Lane. He said this, of this passage as he was preaching it just over 200 years ago. He said, it is my grand cause in life to labour for the gospel. And I guess my application as we close here is, is that true for you? I mean, let's just imagine your friends were to be asked, you know, I popped along to your workplace tomorrow and just sidled up to your friend and said, come out for a coffee, tell me about X. What do you think the grand cause, the great mission of their life is? What do you think they would say? Would they say that the grand cause of your life was the betterment of your kind of comfort and ease, life financially? Would they say the grand cause of your life was your children, your family? I very gently say, our children need nothing. They have so much. 
Christians are people who move toward need rather than comfort. I hope you understand that because it's more blessed to to give, isn't it, than to receive. That's what Jesus says. We're to live for a great cause, not for great comfort. And in receiving that favour of Christ, in our sins being forgiven, in being part of his mission, there will always be sacrifices, costs, financially, educationally maybe for our children, housing implications, all sorts of costs. But often we're we're utterly paralysed by those feelings of, you know, that we're not good enough to be part of Jesus' mission. Feelings of of, of imperfection that hold us back from inviting our friends because we're not sure that they really, uh, they'll they'll see in us. Not perfection of Christ, but just this, they're not quite there. And so we fail to invite them to things or ever speak to them about Christ. I guess where are the people like Wilberforce? Who have, yes, very thick skin because you're going to get it in the teeth when, when you do invite someone. Even though you put your hands up and say, I know I'm not perfect, but I'd love you to come and find out the one who sorted things out for me. Who died on the cross for me and for you. Where are those people that have very thick skin but very soft hearts? Soft hearts for a worthy cause. The mission of Christ. I don't know about you, but... I. Are you really satisfied with the the output of your life for something bigger than yourself or your family? Mums and dads, we idolise our families all too often, I think. And we foolishly think, oh, if I make things better for my kids, then... We may not think this or articulate this, but we're essentially saying, I'll make things better for my kids, but I'm not so worried if my neighbours go to hell. That's not what our kids are for. Kids should be raised watching their mums and dads living, giving themselves in the mission of Christ and joining you in that. And if it costs your children's lives as they sacrifice themselves, going off in mission somewhere, you will stand beside their grave and say, they serve Christ and I'm as proud a parent as I possibly can be. All this wrapping up in cotton wool, which is so prevalent in the culture around us, buying them more than they'll ever need, will ruin our children. Children to be brought up as men and women of a cause, of Jesus' mission, not children of comfort. And when we live for the wrong things, when your mission in life is awry, it does change a lot of things. Have you noticed how things like changes your prayer life? You suddenly start praying things like this. Dear Lord, uh, please give me a a good job, a a nice house, a bigger house, uh, a good school for my child, uh, and so on. None of those things are wrong, but I was reading a commentary on this. American put it this way. He says, prayer is intended to be like a wartime walkie-talkie. You can tell it's American, can't you? But here we go. If we turn it into a domestic intercom to call down from the butler in the sky, it will malfunction. But you have a cause and you say, headquarters, I need fire cover. That's very American. If I, it will work. Because that's what prayer is designed for. But I guess some of us will pray instead like this. Lord, give me just that good day, a good job. Please help me find a home and so on. So, yeah, that's fine, but we must employ prayer as it is given. Lord, help me. Help me to, to tell my friends about Christ. As you employ prayer in its right way, it will blow our minds. 
Someone shared with me the other day, I'll finish with this, um, that their dad was ill, uh, someone who was very close to our family, and uh, they were exhausted. Their, their, their father was ill from just spending their life preaching the gospel in a hostile place. And they were worried that their dad would die early and soon, just retired, very ill. And I said very gently, and they're good friends of mine, and uh, it was received very well. I said, shame on you. And the reason I said that is that you may stand, as I said this to them, you may stand at your father's grave very soon, but you'll be the proudest daughter. Because your father has given his life for claim Christ. So I say shame on me sometimes, and Lord forgive me when I have sought the ease and comfort rather than the sacrifice and the honour of glorifying God and participating in Jesus' mission to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. You might be thinking now as I've gone through some of those applications, this guy's gone mad, he's had a week off preaching, he's gone absolutely balmy. Has he been radicalised by some weird people down the road? No. This is biblical, normal service of the gospel. Does it mean I don't spend a day with my family running around once with coming and having ice creams yesterday? No. But it does mean I want to spend my life for the greatest cause, the ultimate mission. That is to bring salvation to many. I've said enough, way too much I'm sure. Um, I think we've got uh, about three or four minutes for questions. Why don't you turn to the person beside you and uh, see if they uh, want any points of clarification of what we looked at and see if there are any questions. Points of application, points of clarification, as per normal. Chat with someone, you've got a minute, and then we'll see if we've got any questions.